Yle Podcast. This podcast series is based on my experiences while making the documentary film Who Was Felix Kirsten? The film is about Heinrich Himmler's mysterious personal doctor and the revelations that followed. The reason for making this podcast is that after finishing the documentary, well, suffice it to say that the Felix Kirsten story never really went away. Episode 12, The Janice-Faced Character. You, my listeners, probably remember when I told you about the dream I had. About Felix Kirsten, how in that dream, I saw him as a Janice-Faced character, trying to be friends with everyone, not caring whether they were Nazis or their opposites. And how that position of his offered the Nazis a kind of neutral ground and channel through which they were able to contact their enemies. I actually experienced that dream the first time I was going to visit the Swedish National Archive. I remember how in the morning en route to the archive, I recounted the dream to my crew. When having our breakfast, I also remember seeing two men in suits photographing us while pretending to be photographing the breakfast room itself. And how Jan Wellman, the producer said laughing, okay, those guys are not just ordinary tourists. Uh, when we were in Stockholm in hotel breakfast in the morning, there were a couple of guys standing there and taking photographs. I do remember, but I also remember that you were running on high gear when it comes to these kind of observations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's... We were laughing at that episode all the way to the archive until our arrival there, when we encountered the logo of the archive adorning the front door, the Janus face. Now, 20 years later, I wrote a letter to the Swedish National Archive. Just to complete my request, which might sound extraordinary and overwhelming, permit me to give you a quick background. I have made a documentary film about Felix Kersten already 20 years ago, 1998, produced by Ule, the Finnish public broadcasting company. I believe I'm quite familiar with most of the Kersten material which was already available back then. My conclusion about Felix Kersten at the time was that he was not telling the truth. He was a member of the SS and most likely working in RSAJ. There are several documents that can confirm that. Of course, I found out as well that Felix Kersten and the so-called case of the Bernadotte letter was kind of a touchy matter in Sweden. Folke Bernadotte claimed in a forged letter addressed to Heinrich Himmler that he was attempting to deny Jews from being a part of his white buses operation. The forgery proved to be the handiwork of Felix Kersten. But there was something else as well. New research, also by a few respected Finnish historians, indicates that Felix Kersten was actually using a borrowed fake identity and that he really had an official role in the RSAJ. In this podcast series... I'm actually retracting the conclusions I arrived at in my 1998 documentary and attempting to tie a few loose ends, certain oddities, and unanswered questions that were left unanswered by the film. Now that I have unburdened you with a lengthy introduction, what does this all have to do with you and the Riksarchiv? 1. Friedrich Klingenberg was a Jehovah Witness who worked on Felix Kersten's estate as a prisoner from nearby Oranienburg Katzette a concentration camp. 
Back in 1998, he told us that one of the white bus's convoys came also to Gutharzwalda during one of those nights and picked up people from the house, some officers, and at least one Finnish citizen whose name he did not recall. Gutharzwalda is a good 25 kilometers away from the Ravenbrook camp, where the convoy was busy at that time. Why did one of the vehicles go to Gutharzwalda, and is there any report documenting any of this? Who were those people? Two, was there something else going on other than rescuing prisoners? Three, and by the way, around 500 meters from Gutharzwalda was a huge bunker site with underground tunnels, some of which were demolished before the Soviets came. What was the bunker doing there, adjacent to a private family property? My visit to Gutharzwalda this month revealed not just one bunker, but a series of bunkers spread across and probably even underneath Kirsten's estate. I realize these questions might sound odd, but these are the questions I encountered filming back then. And with this present podcast, I hope to finally put those unanswered questions to rest. Any help in the matter would be highly appreciated. Yours sincerely, Arto Koskinen. They answered that there are some materials held by the Swedish secret police, which are still classified, because Swedish law mandates that the available secret police materials are only up to 1949. We would only have been interested to see whether the Swedish secret police had had some comments about Felix Kersten and his Nazi background. The answer from the archive was that we can appeal against that decision to see the Kersten material after 1949. First, we had to launch the appeal, which we did. Then, we got an answer that our request for making the appeal was approved, and we had been granted permission to apply to the right to see the materials after 1949. We made the appeal, and on the same day, they responded that our request was denied. Dear Arto Koskinen, for your information is a formal decision attached to this mail. The decision is about not to revise our decision 1st November 2018, in making only parts of the Felix Kersten documents of the Sapper archive accessible. I had a feeling that all this had been nothing but a formal joke, or maybe it was something that they had to go through for the record, although the persons working in the archive had been extremely helpful. One interesting detail in the middle of this application process was that I happened to meet some Swedish filmmaker colleagues in a Mumbai conference of all places, when having breakfast with them, I started to tell them about the embarrassing application process with the Swedish National Archive. They were interested, but did not quite understand what I was trying to share with them. Who is Felix Kersten? they said. Haven't you ever heard of him? I asked, rather incredulously. Himmler's masseur, who claimed being Finnish but lived on and off since 1943 in Sweden, was involved with the white buses operation you know, the white buses operation at the end of the war. Sure. And you know Folk Bernadotte? Of course. And you have heard of the Bernadotte letter? What letter? Our conclusion was that the Swedes had a blind spot there, of both Bernadotte's letter and Felix Kersten. The veteran Swedish producer, Kalle Bowman, wanted to hear more about this. My original idea was to visit the Swedish National Archive, 
tell them the story Gerald Fleming told me, and ask if they still have national secrets hidden in safes from the war times. I spoke of this also with one Swedish Holocaust historian, and how he said that they were shown certain documents which were meant to be kept deep inside a safe for many decades to come. The historian replied that he had heard similar stories before, but just stories. The only thing I could still do was tell the archivist in charge of our new findings about Felix Kersten and ask if they have available documents about movements of the white buses during the operation in Ravensbrück and the Guthardsvalde area in April of 1945. I wrote them the following. Dear recipients, we are still planning our visit to the Rijksarchiv, but there is still one more thing where we need answers. As we told you earlier, Guthardsvalde was Felix Kersten's estate situated some 25 kilometers from Ravensbrück. Inside that estate were also around 25 storage bunkers run by SS staff and commanded, more or less, by Felix Kersten, who was also a member of the SS. That staff were evacuated on the 25th of April 1945 to Lübeck with the help of the Swedish Red Cross. According to eyewitness, three Swedish personnel were killed in air attacks by the Allies, there has to be some records of all of these movements. How many trucks, whom they rescued, who died, etc. Can you help us with this matter? The answer we got was, Dear Arto Koskinen, In your email dated 2018-1203, you ask for information about a record of the diversion of Swedish trucks for an evacuation of the staff of Felix Kersten's estate, Guthardsvalde. The Swedish Red Cross was taking part in this operation, and you ask for records possibly found in the archive of the Red Cross. Regretfully, we do not have the resources to carry out this research. If you visit Riksarkivet at Arninge, you may ask for archival files that may be relevant for your research. I can give you some suggestions to prepare your visit at Arninge. Also attached was a document, a short report about the White Bus's operation badly translated into English and quite often grammatically inaccurate, as well as doing certain historical events injustice. But that is another matter. Still, the dates and some details in the report matched some of the details Wilhelm Wolf described in his testimony. Obviously, certain columns were operating on the days between the 24th and the 26th of April, 1945, in the same area where Guthardsvalde was located. Anyhow, in this report again, there is no mention of the visit to Guthardsvalde and the evacuation of refugees and or Kersten's staff, probably the ones from the bunkers. Going through all the documents in the archive and trying to find this particular information might be useless. The answers for the questions of what was going on in Guthardsvalde and what might have been hidden there and who were Felix Kersten's staff would not be available in the Red Cross documents anyhow. Boris Solomon was also waiting for answers from Bundesarchive about Guthardswald. Hello, John. Hey, hi, Boris. Okay. Good to see you. Okay. You are expecting, you are waiting some results? Uh, yes, yes. And I'm, I'm very uh, interested. There's some uh, research under work in, in the Stasi archive. 
And a very interesting place is uh, the military archive in Freiburg. But believe me, uh, we will receive interesting material from Freiburg, from the military archive. Uh, I'm almost convinced. And on the other hand, the Stasi archive. Let's hope they will do it very soon. I think it's it's uh, at the beginning of February. Oh my God! It's, okay. It's, but I think we have to visit the uh, Riks archive, uh, the Swedish yeah. National Archive, because I'm not confident uh, with the uh, response from there that some uh, documents are still classified. In my uh, view, it's unbelievable that in uh, 2018, uh, as we discussed. There were buses from the Swedish Red Cross, which arrived at Hartswalde, and they sure. took with them personnel of Hartswalde, yeah. and obviously people from the SS, yes? It very much looks so, but yeah. also when we look at the report of the Swedish report, when they are telling that they... Uh, They spent the night in a forest and divided the column in two the next day. Yes. The other column could have been the one which went to the Kurt Hartswald. Yeah. And then a light fighter plane attacked the yeah. Halkvist group on the Swearing Road. Mm-hmm. And the, this one which was using the Swearing Road is mm-hmm. the same which Wilhelm Wolf is describing in his... Uh, In the Swedish report, they are not mentioning that they did uh, some extra toll. I think it's a delicate issue because uh, if we can prove that they uh, took with them personnel of SS, so it it proves that Sweden was uh, somehow helping Nazis to escape. I think that uh, it would be as a next stage. uh, Yes. yes. I mean, it's just that uh, the time is running out. I think the whole point is that it's not over. But you are quite aware that Kersten, after uh, war, has been in contact with Gottlieb Berger. He, he was uh, the head of the Waffen-SS. Yeah. And other high-ranked uh, guys from the SS. Why? It seems that Felix Kersten had applied for Swedish citizenship on January 1945. But he got an answer only seven years later. His application was rejected. We know now for certain that Felix Kersten's introduction of the so-called Bernadotte letter, the alleged letter from Bernadotte to Himmler, where the former says that he did not want to rescue Jews, was Kersten's trump card. That the letter was a fake was obvious, but it was officially disproved without a doubt by Gerald Fleming in the early 1970s. Felix Kersten admitted it himself when asked by a member of the Swedish parliament, a Mr. Dixon, that the letter was actually half a forgery, and that the letter was a copy from the original. Well, we know that it was written using his own typewriter, and typed by Elizabeth Lubin. Anyhow, the existence of the letter in 1952 was enough for Kersten to demand Swedish citizenship, along with high decoration, lest he show the letter to the king. Even though this is nothing short of blackmail, and even though we know the letter used for the purpose of blackmailing was his own forgery and handiwork, It only took a short time, the following year to be exact, for Felix Kersten to be granted Swedish citizenship. Why? Or did he have even more cards up his sleeve? Hey, Adolf, Matt Josferdam. Hi. I read a book about one of the biggest NSB National Socialist women in the Netherlands, Julia Op de Noord. 
came from aristocratic family. And in the beginning of the 30s, she was involved in what is called the Oxford Group. Yes. And the Oxford Group is a group of Christian people founded originally in the United States, but it has been very popular in the Netherlands, Germany, and some other uh, European uh, countries. And that Christian movement was a kind of revelation of world leaders so that they could use their force to bring peace on the whole earth, quite ideologically. It's a gathering of people from the anthroposophy, theosophy, the new age. And the interesting thing in the Netherlands is that the royal family was very attracted to that Oxford group, the National Socialist Movement in the Netherlands in the first place was also very attracted to that group. This Julia Opternoord was also uh, active in that group. And in the end, it appeared that Felix Kersten was part of that group also. And not only Felix Kersten, but in the beginning of the 30s, Heinrich Himmler also. Yes. I've talked to the author of this book. Uh, I know the man. He's called Rule van Duinen, and he was... In the 60s and the 70s, he was politically active in Amsterdam and in the Dutch Dutch parliament and so on and so on. Ten years, he wrote books about the Second World War and this. What I was very interested in is, are there connections between woman Julia op der Noord, Heinrich Himmler, and Felix Kersten? And he called me back yesterday that he found evidence that this connection was, until after the war, still alive and uh, very close. That explains to me how Felix Kertsen in the Netherlands during the 30s, when uh, Queen William, Wilhelmina asked him to come over to uh, the Netherlands for her husband to Prince Hendrik, how he got so quickly into the, the inner circle of the aristocracy and high industrials, because that's the aristocracy and the high industrials who were active in that Oxford group. Makes sense. But this connection from Himmler and the Oxford group, the National Socialist in the Netherlands, and Felix Kersen, doesn't that explain something about how things could go? I think so. That's uh, one uh, very obvious link. Yeah. And I also think, because I have never understood why uh, someone who is uh, part of the Himmler surroundings, and also part of Dutch uh, surroundings of uh, the monarchy, uh, aristocrats, and so on, now it's getting clear yes. and how the link is. But did you ask anything about, you were telling also about uh, the kind of an Felix Kirsten's letters and files. I did ask the author, and he's looking for it. There was one witness, he spoke, one of the people who was very involved with Himmler and with Julia Opternoord and Felix Kirsten, explains that Himmler burned his personal archives, okay. uh, that Julia Opternoord burned their, her personal archives also, but that he was afraid that uh, Felix Kirsten didn't do that and that the archives from him were transferred to London after the World War. So Himmler and Tula, they burned the archives? Their own archives, yes. Yes, but they were afraid that Kirsten didn't do it. Yes, there has been a, a circle of Irish women who were in favor, of course, of uh, the National Socialist cults, uh, and they were experimenting SS babies. They were single women, this Julia Optenort was one of them, who were got pregnant from SS, high military, with all the categories of blue eyes and blonde hair and so on and so on. And, so on. and they were gathered in two or three uh, towns in Germany where they brought uh, their child, and then the child was supposed to be, in the end, the SS generation after the establishment of the Third Reich. This Julia Optenort was one of those women who unmarried, got pregnant and buried SS child, and apparently the father of that child was uh, Henry Hinder. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I know one thing for sure. This who from down this author, he is reliable. He has been checked out. Also, this book, 
by the you know the National Institute for War Inquiries from Lou de Jong, you know, they yes. have spoke to Wilson. So there is no doubt that what he writes down is 99% correct. The title of my 1998 documentary is Who Was Felix Kersten? And it seems, 20 years later, that that question still remains. Once upon a time, this personal archive of Felix Kersten can come above, and that then history must be rewritten again. Heading towards Birmingham, come 2,000 young men from 23 nations to conquer the world for God and Dr. Frank Buckman's Oxford group. Some people call the Oxford group a new religion. Others, less tolerant, call it just a pleasant way of spending the bank holiday weekend. But so much interest and enthusiasm is being aroused by this new movement that we are presenting these pictures of the group's Birmingham house party, as it's called. At 6 a.m., the entire party leaps out of bed, goes for a run, takes exercises to clear mind and soul for the day. At 7 a.m. comes breakfast, and plenty of it, for good food means health, and health is one of the basic rules of the Oxford group. Then there's marching and parading, with every member of the party organized into youth brigades. But the main business of the day takes place in the British Industries Fair Hall, where the 2,000 groupers sit on mats on the floor and listen to speeches. Mostly they are middle-class youths, clerks, college boys and workers, who have found their careers inadequate without the Oxford group. The main thing they learn is the importance of God control in daily life. But as this is also coronation year, some of the time is spent in drawing up a loyal address to their majesties the king and queen. And with the leader carrying the address in front of a panoply of waving flags, comes the march to the post office to post it. Whatever part the Oxford group is destined to play in the national life, few can deny that this Birmingham party is one of the biggest spiritual gatherings of the century. The podcast is directed and realized by Arto Koskinen. Written by Arto Koskinen and John Bernstein. The voiceover of Arto Koskinen is dramatized by Trent Pansy. Sound design and music is made by Kimmo Vantinen.